You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Osell. I'm an architect at This.Labs. Today, we're very excited to sit down and talk reliability with Maggie Johnson-Pent. Maggie, jo- Maggie is the co-founder and head of product at Stanza. We're going to get into what that is and what reliability is. Maggie, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing awesome. I am currently, you know, podcasting from Open Source Summit. And, you know, where else would I rather be? This is a good day. Um, sunny day in Vancouver, too. So I'm great. That's right. You, you got to go where the developers are, right, when you're developing a new product. So uh, that's, that's good. How's, how's the event been so far for you? It, it's been awesome. I I am seeing people who I haven't seen in like, you know, since the before. Um, and that's really exciting. So, so it's been a topic that's come up a lot on these podcasts as people because this is really this has been the year that a lot of people are kind of going back. I think some people had things last year. I think this has been the year everybody's kind of gone to full scale things or really gone into it. It's been fun to talk to people about it. I know the people I've talked to, like the energy, the vibe is totally different. It's way better, way more intense than it was uh, before before the before times, I guess. How, how has it been for you as well? Do you, have you kind of observed the same stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think people are just really excited to see each other again. Um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've done a few events now. You know, once you start a company, you start doing them. And uh, yeah, people are excited to be back out in the world and doing things and... The way I described it is people are even stopping at the booths. I mean, I've, I've tabled at many conferences before and after COVID. And I, after COVID, people actually kind of want to stop and have a conversation with you instead of just grabbing the swag. And I'm like, that, that is the purest sign that people were just hungering to be around other developers. Yes. Yes. <laughs> they definitely don't need any more T-shirts, right? Or like socks. So right. they just yeah. want a sock. The, the swag world. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, let's dive into it. Today, we were gonna be talking about reliability. And I think this is maybe a phrase that uh, everybody's heard of, um, and, and maybe they even say it in respect to software, but I think it's a topic, well, I know it's a topic that's quite vast. There's a lot of literature, there's a lot of scholarship on it. Uh, a lot of words have been written, a lot of engineering's been done on the topic. So I guess maybe to get us really started, like when we're talking about sort of reliability, reliability engineering, can you give us a sense of like, where does that go? Like, what is that at, at kind of the sort of crazy extremes? Where, where does that go? Like, how are big companies doing that? How, how, where does this uh, topic get, uh, you know, where does this topic lead us? Yeah, so I think reliability and reliability engineering and DevOps and platform engineering, like whatever the term du jour is for it, is a space that's been really poorly understood by the broader developer community largely because it was developed inside of these very vast organizations. Um, You know, the original SRE movement came out of Google, um, but we see the DevOps movement coming out of all of these Silicon Valley companies, large organizations, people think, oh, that's not for me or, or that's really, you know, existential. But I don't know a software that doesn't need to be reliable, really. Like all customers want software to be reliable, um, when I took on making a reliability startup, one of the first things I started doing was every time I would talk to someone who didn't work in the tech space, um, 
which like I live in Seattle. So like when I meet someone who doesn't work in tech, I'm like excited. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. But I, I would talk to people. I would say to people who didn't work in the tech space, you know, my sister-in-law, my mom, uh, I would say, hey, what is reliable software? Like when, when was the last time you used unreliable software? And first of all, people have very strong feelings that they want reliable software. And second of all, they actually like really struggle to differentiate between reliability in the sense that people in the reliability space will talk about it, which is like availability, latency, throughput, errors. They really struggle to differentiate between things like that and just like bad UX um, mm. to, to the end user. It's all reliability. Performance. And, yeah, things like that. Yeah. It's it's they don't they don't see these things differently. And I think one of the most important things we can do in the general discussion of reliability as a developer community is sort of abandon any thinking that it's about hitting a number or finding a measurement or having Kubernetes and go back to thinking, hey, this is about does the user have this feeling that that software that they trust, mm. trust to do what they need. And, and that's something that I think all software needs, right? Like for you to have a great software for your customer, that's required. Um, yeah, that's interesting. So along those lines, I mean, so you're right. So I think, I think one of the things that people might have in their minds if they haven't done this explicitly is like the idea of nines. So people have heard of like five nines or four nines or however many nines you want to support. Um, this is part of this conversation, but you're saying maybe not the entire conversation that people should be focusing on. Right. So I think actually, so first of all, let's talk about nines. Um, sometimes you'll hear from uh, from like a software vendor, like if you're on the cloud, you know, if you use AWS, you use Azure or whatever, they'll say, well, we're going to offer you this many nines of availability or your SaaS providers might do that, your monitoring provider, that kind of thing. And what they're really saying there is like, is the service up? Like, can you ping and get a response um, at this amount of time? But like nines is actually, it's kind of a nonsensical measurement, right? Because anybody knows that like if you call to to an api but it gives you the wrong information back then <laughs> if it gives you the wrong information back quickly and with no errors that wasn't helpful um and so i think it's interesting that we kind of got this concept that like well reliability is like okay um, the first understanding is nines, which is just like, hey, you know, can I ping this and do I get a response? Is it working by that definition? Then we sort of evolved to, in the reliability space, people will talk about something called golden signals. And when they say golden signals, what they're looking at is latency. How fast does something come back? Latency. Um, throughput, like how many requests can I process? and then error rate. So like how many errors per minute am I getting? And those are the signals that they'll measure and they'll call those um, SLIs typically, service level indicators. And those are, those are what people in the reliability space will use as a core indicator of health. Um, and they're actually from the standpoint of getting kind of a top level idea of is my software working out for my customer? They're really valuable things to measure. Um, but on the flip side, like 
they don't necessarily tell you much about the customer's experience, really, right? Um, and and so that's where I think we kind of need evolved thinking on some of these things because I think there got to be like in the reliability space, people got really fixated on like driving those numbers up or measuring those numbers on like a per microservice basis or at a level of granularity. And it actually, in a lot of cases, like another nine is very expensive to get and it doesn't matter to your user. <laughs> um, and, and what you're really trying to get is just a seamless experience where they understand what's happening. They don't feel like they're struggling. They trust you as a software provider. And I, I, I hope that's a change we can make in the conversation because I think we've sort of run that, that you know, idea of nines <laughs> as far as it can go. Um, and we need to come back to user terms. Yeah, in some ways, it's, it's like in the testing world when you talk about code coverage. It's like, yeah. it, it's, not a, it's not a bad metric. It's just not the metric that absolutely everything should revolve around. Like it's an aspect of a, of a sort of a broader testing strategy. Um, I don't, I don't know if you, if you have this impression, but I feel like on smaller teams, software might be kind of what you may call incidentally reliable. In other words, it just hasn't broken yet. <laughs> um, and I feel like a lot of teams, they deploy something and it seems to be working. Um, and, you know, I was encountering this on a project recently, the first time the system started building up back pressure and all of a sudden the queues were just filling and we were like, oh no, <laughs> you know, like what is the next step? Um, and I feel like there's a lot of stress on teams, those times when they sort of are rediscovering or, or are sort of doing their introductory lessons in this reliability engineering, both they're realizing they couldn't notice it until it was too late, or they realize that once they've noticed it, they have very little control over what to do, except for to maybe re-engineer an entire thing or to scale dramatically or, you know, whatever it is at great cost. Is Does this match what you've seen like with smaller teams or what we might call immature teams, meaning they just, it's just maybe more generalist uh, engineers or people that don't have a lot of like that formal engineering and maybe DevOps or reliability or something like that? Yeah. So when we talk about, um, what you're really talking about is scaling. Like um, when something goes viral and then we have to rethink how we're operating that thing. So a nice example of a team who's living through scaling right now is uh, is the wonderful folks over at Blue Sky. Like kudos to them for living through what they're living through. Um, and that's an interesting team that just kind of had a scale up situation that was interesting to watch. So they suddenly like got all viral, like people decided they were going over to Blue Sky from Twitter. And um, as these invite codes got handed out, they have more and more people pouring onto Blue Sky and Blue Sky isn't even Blue Sky isn't even intended to serve all of the users of Blue Sky, right? Like it's intended to be federated and they're they're taking on 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 users uh, in this viral moment. And there was one that, that really, like I related to it, it stuck with me last week, which is that they were like, oh, well, we're going to have to take the site down for like 10 minutes because we got to get a provisional larger database. And um, of course they do, right? <laughs> Look at what's happening. And um, what was really interesting was they did the database reprovisioning and then people are so into Blue Sky 
that they sat there like pounding F5 on the computer or like refreshing the app. And what happened is something that we sometimes will call like a thundering herd where they were trying to bring the system back up. And then what would happen is right away, so many users would flood that it would actually take out, I, I presume it's a cube cluster they're running, it would take out, you know, the pods and they, <laughs> and they, it took them, you know, they were, they were blue skying that it took them about 20 minutes longer than they wanted to, to come back up after that maintenance, because there wasn't really a scaling plan in place for how to fade, um, fade traffic out, like fade people out, and then safely fade them back in. So they just had to like that. Um, and that's that's definitely an experience teams have. That's something that we work on at Stanza. Um, I also think that it's also something that we call um, tap down failure. Like basically, I just got so much traffic that I can't deal anymore. And you typically deal with that by things like scaling up your database, uh, scaling out, you know, provisioning larger clusters. And then we can also deal with that the way Stanza does in traffic management, which I'll circle back around to. The other kind of reliability problem that you see that is actually more common, but people have a harder time, I think, understanding what you can do with it is losing underlying resources. So um, really common for software companies to have major incidents, major problems around things like Reddit's going down or losing a Postgres replica um, or getting like lockups on databases where um, the requests are contending with each other and you just can't serve right now. Um, and, and those are more subtle problems but they're actually also problems of having kind of too many requests. And really you can, you can separate reliability problems into kind of two big categories. One is like bugs, like that code broken. <laughs> and the other is too many requests uh, or, or what we call traffic. And like most incidents, like one or the other, or a bit of both. Um, and um, knowing how to manage a code bug, people kind of get that because their coders like, oh, okay, well, better fix that, right? Um, I think a lot of times we don't think about how can we mitigate the impact of that? How can we, while we're writing that fix, do something to make it so that this isn't so bad for users? That's a really interesting space to think about in reliability engineering. And until I got into the space, I did not think in those terms. I did not think, oh, while I'm trying to fix this in the long term, how do I mitigate this in the short term for people? And I think that's something that every developer can learn from the, from the SRE space is like, think in terms of mitigation, because the only thing that matters is user impact. Um, I don't know. That's an interesting concept. Sorry. I'm kind of babbling. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. Uh, I, 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 you know, the, the issue again, it was super fascinating. The issue that I was talking about because it was a system that was working completely healthfully until it reached a tipping point. And you just don't realize that underneath the hood, as it was building up requests, it was completely healthy. And then it got to a point where it had reached equilibrium. Just as many things were going in as going out. And then from there, it's just started cascading because once it went over the tip, you know, that piece and what you realize, and I think what a lot of developers realize when they get into this situation is, I wish I had a better way to know what was happening, both that thing yep. and to know why it's happening. 
Um, and then to say, I wish I could do anything about it because right. you can, you know, uh, some products have long pathways. They, um, you know, this is a CI CD challenge, uh, continuous integration, continuous delivery challenge, but some teams can't make a production change in a reasonable time frame. So a situation like this becomes panic inducing when you realize you have relatively few levers. So when you start talking about things like observability, if that's even the right term in this case, or like control, is that part of reliability stuff that we're talking about here? Or is that like, or is that just the, your world if you're always dealing with your hair being on fire? Like reliability is making sure you need, not that you always need it, but that's, we wanna hopefully set up a situation so you, you're less worried about those things. So you need both proactive and reactive. Um, so, um, okay, if I get this wrong, Laura Nolan on my team will kill me because she thinks about this all the time, but you're actually talking about a difference between um, resilience and kind of reactive. So when we talk about building resilient systems, that's getting systems to a place where they are built in such a way that they can handle those kinds of problems, right? Um, and we need resilience in our systems. And we also need observability, things like that. Therefore, reactivity. Therefore, like, oh, something is happening. What do I do about it? Whether that's a human intervention or an automation intervention, they're about reactivity. And we actually need to have both. Um, so, you know, when you talk about, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what was going on with the system that, that you're describing. You could go you, are you able to go into more detail? Or sure. I mean, it? realistically, all that was happening was just that um, we had provisioned a certain number of agents that were processing a queue. And um, they didn't auto scale because they weren't consuming the CPU. Like they, they didn't hit any type of auto scaling. Um, and there was no scaling setup that said, hey, if you're not actually getting through the list fast enough, make more of you. And so the list just grew. <laughs> they were working as hard as they could, but it wasn't enough. And That's... none of our alerts or systems were set up in a way to let us know that, um, except until our, Q, our, our, you know, our Redis instance filled to capacity and suddenly said, hey, enough is enough. And, and that kind of was one of the red flags. So, you know, it was a big, it was a big lesson learned for everybody. We said, oh, we, you know, auto scaling isn't magical. It, you have to make sure that your scaling will operate on the dimensions that you need it to scale on. And it was like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, totally. And that one's so common that you get queue backups. Like one of the most important things you can do as an engineer, if you have any kind of queue, is you should immediately put metrics on the length of that queue and how stale that queue is. And, uh, you know, AWS will do that right for you. Like, I wish I could sit here and sell you Stanza, but like, you don't even need Stanza. Like that's, that's a button at AWS and you should push it. Uh, <laughs> and that's a really common one. I'm kind of curious, you mentioned Redis was in there. Did Redis end up like, Redis is really prone to something that we'll call a metastable failure. And it sounds like you might have gotten this where your Redis instance just like started randomly failing requests and it was going to keep doing that until you restarted it. Well, not until we restarted it, until we uh, added more memory to the system to give us a little bit of time to fix the bug. But okay, so yeah, basically... A no, it, it just basically ran out of memory. It just it said, I, enough is enough. That's enough in my instance, sorry. Um, and again, it was just yep. one of the things that happened very quickly because once the system went out of its tipping point, it went from being completely capable of keeping up to 
almost exponentially failing uh yep. and it was all very rapid uh and so it was like oops <laughs> it was yep. easy so to that... alleviate in the near term and, and somewhat easy to fix in the medium term we were lucky in that case but again a lot, i think a lot of teams get surprised by this all the time because everything works until it doesn't and yep. if you if you haven't encountered it before uh, you relearn a lot of what the community has generally learned uh you know anew yeah and and so one thing that that you described there with redis that's actually really um interesting that that is something that we do help with at stanza is typically when you have something like a database which redis is really a database what you want to do is you want to have if you really want to get a great like resilient adaptive system you actually want to rate limit requests into that database because the database has an upper capacity of what it can do and databases don't auto scale like compute right like you have to go and make a change and so what you really want to do when you have a situation like that if you want like great reliability is you want to actually do something to broker the requests going to that database and in your situation, instead of running that out of memory, what you would want to do is you would actually want to start rejecting requests um, that at that point you have to have some basis for that. You can just reject one in 10 requests or whatever, if that's what makes us the other nine complete and people can retry their thing. Um, with Stanza, we actually let you prioritize. So you can say, hey, this is the most important thing. Either this is a high dollar customer or this is a very important feature. Um, and you can start to say, okay, well, I can only serve super high importance requests right now. We enable that. But what fundamentally, when you have that kind of too much traffic coming into something like that, having a plan for, hey, while I am figuring out my long game, how do I get a short game to just preserve this system? is really, really valuable for your users because instead of them waiting around for you to read it, because even just the time that you spend to go and do the scale up on that Redis instance, and then it's going to have to, you know, presumably you're getting a new instance and it's going to have to propagate the uh, miserable, right? Um, <laughs> if in that time uh, you can do something to make it so that you're not killing it, that's really valuable. And a lot of times people don't think about, like a lot of people rate limit, like, at the ingest point, like incoming requests, especially B2B software, like, oh, customers get this many requests. But actually, if you rate limit between services, then you have an automatic mitigation for mm -hmm. um, when incidents like that occur. Um, another interesting reason to kind of rate limit between services or, or through inner process, um, there was a really interesting uh, thread from from Purcell, um, where someone was like, I am on free plan and I just got a $3,000 bill. What happened? And what was going on is that the Lambda functions, the serverless functions underneath Purcell or Lambdas, I think that's well known, but they were calling each other recursively. And effectively, this person DDoSed themselves, but because Lambda is is automatically scaling it, like, but, 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 it kept going. <laughs> And the net result of it was a really large bill. Um, and so this is another place where if you actually have something in place to broker traffic, which like I said, is what we do at Stanza, then what would have happened is you would have set a limit. You would have said, okay, well, my lambdas really, they can only take this many requests. And even though autoscale would go bigger, you would have gotten a stopping point on a bill like that, right? 
Um, so that's another reason to do kind of inter process traffic management is what we'd call that. Um, and um, you can find a lot of value in that, um, you know, going back to the blue sky example, if they had had a way to turn down effectively their rate limit and uh, ad hoc and say, well, um, as we're coming up, we can only take one tenth of the requests we would normally be able to take. So we're going to start at one tenth. And then as we come up, we're going to we're going to go to one fifth and, and kind of slowly fade all of that traffic back in. They would have had actually a much faster come up time, if that makes sense, instead of just letting it all slam down. Um, and so there are things like that we can do to build into systems. And this is, this is like I said, I don't want to sit here and sell the product forever. This is what Stanza works on to kind of build that resilience and say, okay, well, we can have different approaches that get us, you know, the best outcome for the situation that we're in. You know, another situation recently that's been interesting and that's been fascinating to watch is the, the sort of Ticketmaster one, which uh, people haven't heard about it. They just very popular um, sort of concerts and things like that went off and, and they had issues. Now, I think this has been a problem that's existed for a decade. I mean, I, I remember trying to buy conference tickets in the past and, uh, and you know, the second they would go up, they would sell out um, or the servers would crash. And it's what you were talking about earlier, sort of the stampeding herd, right? Because you would just F5 until you could buy something and then you would try to buy it and then it would fail. So then you would F5 again and try to buy it and that never ended. And the solution that ended up being implemented in some cases is now, you know, when you would be ready to purchase something, they put you into some long queue and you just sort of wait in the queue until it's your turn. And then, and then you may be purchased. It's not perfect solution, but it works in some ways. But what was interesting about this is that like, again, we take this for granted, especially gamers. I mean, how many times are you going to log in queue on the, on the opening day of, of a server, but this, this approach is something that very few people will build into their systems. I mean, not anticipating that they'll ever end up in a situation like that. Uh, but, you know, is there is there promise in this? Like, because I know that there are maybe ways to take, like, if, you, if you're having a very busy time, like, is there ways to say, hey, you know, these calls, okay, you get in, the rest of you just kind of wait to kind of lessen that, to slow users down or to, to, to do this in any kind of way that, uh, maybe users don't, or developers don't have to build their own queuing system from scratch. So I think, I mean, with the ticketing scenario, a lot of weird things I think happened there. Um, I think you just had, um, you know, there's only as many tickets as there are. So I understand why they have to do like the that's That's hard room. too, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's only so many physical seats in the stadium. So I understand why they had to do that. I think sometimes with very high profile events, what you'll see, interestingly, is a change in user behavior. You'll see um, that even if people aren't intending to buy tickets, they like hear about the problem and go to the website. <laughs> it's like rubbernecking for the internet. Yeah. I, I think I've heard of this happening with game launches too. It is like Robert Ecking for the internet and that you can definitely do some good solutions to uh, as web developers. I'm a web developer, uh, you know, uh, by, by training and, 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 you know, very much a JS person. Like I'm here at open JS world right now. Um, 
And one thing that I think we don't think enough about is how we can have a healthy relationship with our infra teams. So um, what oftentimes our websites are blasting off like 20 requests. Um, like open a, open a web page and hit F12. And, and I think we, I won't say that developers don't think about that. Like we know that impacts performance and we know the size of the payload impacts performance. We know those things. Um, but I think a lot of times we don't think about how do we kind of, we're actually part of the distributed system. And like, we forget that, like the client is part of the distributed system. And if we switch our mindset to thinking about, okay, we're part of that distributed system. Um, for whatever reason, we can't serve everything we have right now. We have stress, we have load. Um, then we can make some choices like at a lot of, at a lot of the uh, kind of very Silicon Valley companies, like I know for a fact they have this at Netflix, there'll be a system that'll say, okay, well, the system's under load. So I'm going to tell my UI to stop serving um, certain banners, ads, widgets, um, to actually reduce that load in a way that it doesn't matter much to the user anyways, right? It was an upsell feature. It was a number. It's cool that it's there and it's fine that it's gone right now. And what you can do is you can really change perceived reliability um, mm -hmm. by doing that. Um, and at the same time, you can really like alleviate pressure on the system that otherwise it's going to have to deal with, right? Like the minute that people are mashing F5, you're beating up the ingest point of that system. Um, and, and you have to deal with that. And actually it's better to just stop at the client where possible. Um, and this is something that we actually do at Stanza is we, we make this UI toolkit so that you can say, okay, um, I can't serve requests right now because I'm exceeding limits. Can we drop things? Um, and certainly when you talk about like the concert scenario, there's lots of requests that probably could have been dropped out there uh, to help those folks out. Uh, like I said, that's speculative on my side, but um, you know, on, on most pages that's true. And that can really alleviate system stress. The other place where that's really valuable is say you have a uh, cache that reads through to a database, you lose the cache. Well, right now you can only take about like probably a third of the requests as you could before because you're reading through. And so that's not a spike scenario, that's a come up scenario, but at, at, in that scenario as well, um, just taking out stuff that is less important is really valuable. Um, yeah, it's thing. it's underappreciated too, right? Because like the, the UIs that we build um, nowadays, okay, the 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 move towards a lot more backend work notwithstanding but in certainly in the heart of the era of spas which are a lot of deployed systems right now um yeah. you know bigger teams and bigger products can build this up unintentionally over time where you're doing a lot of localized data grabbing and even if you have good data engineering you might still be getting a lot of different pieces of data for one ui um and sometimes you know we hate to admit it as developers, but sometimes we don't build systems that fail cleanly. So it's either all up or all down, all down. Um, yeah. because of, you know, even if the least consequential feature has experiences in error, it takes down the whole app. Uh, you know, we want to be better at that, but we've all built something that failed that way. Um, and so 
I, I, I do like this idea because I think it's it's hard for teams to do because I think it it, it sort of broaches on the concepts of like feature flagging and again, going yep. back to observability. It's tying together a lot of different tools and, and, and sort of capabilities that people aren't particularly skilled at or just don't have experience thinking about. And I, I, you know, for people that are having trouble conceptualizing this in what we were talking about, like you can think about this on like going to Amazon or any other sort of e-commerce site. Why are you there? You're there to buy a product and then to pay for it. That's what they want you to be able to do. But those sites nowadays have so much with their recommendations that show up with, you know, any other type of content that comes up and other types of features that they have, right? Those UIs are flooded with things. And if you could say, hey, recommendation yeah sure we'll get less sales but at least people will be able to buy something then better than if the site goes down yes and so that promise of being able to be like wow that would be so cool if you know because if my front end's making 15 requests to the back end and i'm flooded i could cut that in half or by 75 percent just by disabling a couple of features that is very exciting <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think that's true for a lot of sites and people just don't, I think, think about it in those terms. You know, um, I, it, another one that I kind of see going viral lately is is everybody's throwing these like LLMs into their website <laughs> and uh, the, the ML models, the chat GPT, and um, actually the, uh, the limits on chat GPT are are very low, like ChatGPT is expensive. <laughs> and and what'll happen is people will just get slammed with like they roll out their ChatGPT feature and it's going to new users. And then users start to abuse it. I don't think like maliciously, like they aren't writing well, animation, but they just start to way overuse they're it. They're interested in what, it, yeah. Yeah, what really needs to happen is you need to say, okay, everybody gets one request a minute. Paid users get five requests a minute. Free users get one request a minute. And then you need to do some work where if the user can't make requests right now, you just say to him, yo, uh, you can't make requests right now. Like, come back, come back in a minute. And and we can build those kinds of systems to stop one user from starving everyone else from being able to use ChatGPT. <laughs> um, but we have to think about it. We have to do it, right? Um, and, yeah. and that's... It's not in our, our mind, but I think, you know, on the web developer side, um, we care a lot about user experience. And, and going back to what I'm saying at the beginning, the user really can't differentiate user experience from reliability. So it's worthwhile to think about these things because it causes the user to have higher trust. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I think it's not as hard as we think like yeah which is which isn't to say that it's too easy it's just it's approachable if it's if you prioritize it and you you take the time and you really tackle the problems it's it's not that it requires really, some insurmountable level of yeah. engineering talent it's just that you it, it's something that a lot of teams either just aren't aware it's like an unknown unknown to a lot of teams yeah Exactly. And, and, and it's really not a whole lot different, right, than building a responsive design that'll work on a phone and on a desktop, right? Like we, yeah. we regularly degrade UIs or adapt UIs to that. So there's no reason why we can't build adaptively in other ways. Uh, you know, it's just responsive, responsive for infrastructure instead of responsive for the device. 
Um, and we can get a lot of value out of that. And I think we can add value for our users because as web developers, of course, we care a lot about UX. And if we are creating systems that, hey, if it ain't going to work, we take it out. Um, that's great for people. And if we're doing things like with Stanza, you know, I mentioned you can prioritize requests. If you're able to say, um, this is the most important thing going on in this page, please give me this if you give me anything, you're going to give your users a lot of value there um, that they you know, might otherwise lose. Um, the other nice place where this comes in is like, hopefully you can cut back on support calls, right? Always positive. Always well, good. Let's elaborate on the on the stanza piece. So I know you've been making reference to it a little bit. Um, so for people that haven't picked up on it right now, uh, stanza is the product that Megan and her team are, are putting together. That's trying to help. Uh, I suppose you would say like bring this cap these capabilities, this experience, the, these these um, things that site reliability engineers have known or, or do regularly uh, to more teams and a broader set of teams. So. Uh, some of the things that we've been talking about already with the ability to sort of, um, uh, I won't say magically, but it'll feel like magic, I suppose, when, you, for, for when you're using it, you know. uh, give you the ability to kind of disable or enable parts of the, the UI or, or, or react to, to changes. I mean, how, how should people understand what Stanza can do for them and why it might be interesting for them to check out? Yeah, I think anytime you've had a scenario, we've talked through a lot of the reasons where you have too many requests, um, <laughs> whether that's because you had a Redis fail, a database replica fail, uh, even a straight microservice down scenario, you had too many requests and your user would have had a better experience if you had either driven that up into the UI or you have prioritized those requests and said, this is really important and that one we can, we can maybe not do right now. Uh, Stands is good for that. Um, some things that we do that are, are kind of interesting um, is we do come in and code. We are not something like Nginx or something that goes in a proxy layer. Those are really valuable tools. But if you are living with Lambda or any kind of PaaS, they're not tools for you. Um, and, and we are able to help you no matter where you are. Um, uh, we can run like as an express middleware um, and broker requests incoming from there. Um, if you have a situation like you're using ChatGPT or you're using Stripe and you're regularly getting hit by a rate limiter um, that's saying, I can't help you right now, and you know that some of those requests are more valuable requests than others, we can actually help you broker your requests from your application into those kinds of services and help you prioritize them there. Um, so that's that's you know a great use case for us. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at everybody's ChatGPT integration right now, um, <laughs> and and we can also absolutely help people uh, do things like prioritize paid users over free, um, or in some cases for some businesses it makes sense to prioritize free users over paid because they really want to get the free and the paid's already there. Go figure. Um, <laughs> That's Whatever the same logic. That's the same logic that prioritizes the sign up button and hides the login button. Because they're like, once you're paying, uh, whatever. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we can, we can help you with stuff like that. You know, we can help you divide up your chat GPT requests uh, per user. So nobody, nobody starves everyone else. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so for people, for people that are thinking that this tool again, because we know like Oh, you, and, you've and worked the, in the Lambda oh, bill. 
lest I forget the Lambda bill, if you just want to limit the number of requests you have in Lambda so that you keep your bill low uh, and limit recursions, uh, we're happy to help there too. <laughs> and, I mean, increasingly something that people should, I mean, worry about yeah. because you are you are you are six hours of a bad push from from being very much in debt to one of these companies and begging for them to forgive your bill but uh yeah. uh but you know so for people that have been listening again they they realize that this is complex and they may be a member of one of these small teams uh or immature teams um they may be you know working at a smaller company and thinking that this tool and the capabilities that it tries to provide are beyond them, that the the ideas that will be constrained, a lot of the concepts and the names of the metrics we've heard about, they're like, we're not even worried about that at all. We're just trying to get this thing yep. used by more people. Is this still yep. something that they can use? Or do you have to have a certain level of experience in these concepts to be able to use a, a tool like Stanza effectively? So you should be able to use it if you have one of these scenarios and you can write code, you should be able to use it. Um, it installs actually very similar to, I'll, I'll shout out one of my favorite monitoring providers. It installs very similar to Sentry if you've installed that. Um, so like I said, we come in in a middleware like layer, which is super similar install process. Um, there is a little bit a little bit of configuration to, to figure out your limits. Um, we're working on an adaptive, which will basically detect, hey, stuff's broken, so we gotta pull the limits down. Um, and hopefully we'll have that soon. We're a very early startup. So, you know, forgive us for not having the adaptive in there quite yet. And then I think it'll get really easy, right? It'll just be like, make sure this doesn't get too crazy over here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think anybody can can use it um, if you've had these categories of problems. Um, and definitely people should feel free to go to our website, stanza.systems, and there's a book a demo button on there. And because we're a really early startup, all that is is me, like you'll get me. Um, <laughs> and and I'm happy to help you talk through your solution. Um, I will not even try to sell you Stanza. Like if you come to me with the reliability question about your system, I will see what we can do to get you helped, uh, regardless of the tech that you need there. I'm really passionate about that. Like I don't want people to feel like they had to have this thing. Uh, so yeah, I, I think like with, with a lot of tools that are very. Um promising that that make people excited i think it 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 doesn't it seems to bridge that gap right like a lot of us got really excited about like aws and, and the different services that it provided because it was like oh wow like you're you're kind of taking away a lot of things that are very complicated and maybe uh putting that under one roof make it a little bit easier right like that's a lot of why like next is, is super popular and things like that is you take yeah. a lot of really difficult concepts and you kind of package it together and then I can, you know, evolve with it. I can maybe start to get under the hood and change things, but my out-of-the-box experiences is great. And I, that's what I think is sort of interesting about this is I, I love this idea to get the capability to get access to some of these things that would take a lot of engineering otherwise to set up in our own systems to get a flavor of that, to do some of the basic stuff, and then over time to get more sophisticated. Like, I love that idea of helping teams evolve from being maybe unfamiliar with this technology or these concepts to then growing with the software and eventually knowing what all the little dials and fidgets and the fine tunings that they could do would act how that would actually affect their system. Yeah, and and I I'm I'm really excited that we're able to do that because I you know the things that we do with technology like Istio or Haproxy Envoy, which are probably just buzzwords to most developers, the things that we can do with them are awesome. 
And right now they're kind of bolted to this like Kubernetes modern infra stack, which is a great stack for large enterprises, but everybody has problems. And I'm really excited that we can kind of bring this because we're in code to everybody. Like if you have code, we can help. Well, great. Um, you know, I would, I think in conclusion, what I would say to everybody is what I said earlier, everybody's system is fine until it fails. Uh, so take some time now yep. to talk to your team about what you would do and how you would respond to some of these cases that we've been talking about here today. Um, just so you don't end up the next Twitter uh, anecdote that uh, comes up on a future podcast. Um, but uh, for people that were interested, Maggie, in Stanza or the things that you've been talking about today, or just you in general, can you explain to them where they can find out more? Yeah, you can totally find our website. That's at stanza.systems. Uh, and I am on Twitter uh, as at Maggie Pint. I'm on Blue Sky OG handle, uh, maggie.bsky.social. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, like I said, feel free to get in touch. If you have reliability questions, feel free to click that book a demo button. And like I said, even if you're like, I don't even want your software, I just want help with this problem. I'm happy to help you. Uh, Great. Well, that will do it then for us for today. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this Modern Web Podcast on reliability. Uh, thank you to our guest, Maggie. As always, we say the conversation does not stop here. As you heard, you can find Maggie on Twitter at Maggie Pint. That's M-A-G-G-I-E-P-I-N-T. Uh, you can find me online at RoboCell. As for the podcast, you can find us online at moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Maggie. And we'll see everybody next time. Thank you. Come on. Come on, everybody. This podcast is sponsored by this.labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. Shout it, yeah! Queries do, so come on, let's go, cause we got a show for